Hey, City Church, I want to welcome you to this service and my part of it. I also want to say hey to all of the guests watching us, uh, both in San Antonio and around the world. The, the message that I have today is so important. It's so crucial, especially for such a time as this. Now, you guys know that our ongoing coronavirus pandemic has turned from a tragic health crisis into a tragic financial crisis for many. Tens of millions of our fellow Americans have had to file for uh, unemployment. And studies suggest that the unemployment rate has soared to nearly 20%. And that's so tragic for so many, maybe even some of you. These are some of the most challenging financial times I've ever experienced in my 57 years of life. And my heart goes out to those of you who have either lost a job or lost income because of this tragic season. And today, my, my desire is to speak some words of faith and hope that will help us all get through what we're going through together. Now, I consider myself fortunate that I got the opportunity to know all four of my grandparents pretty well. And my mom's mom, uh, we call Nanny. And uh, Nanny is a great lady, just love being around her. And during the latter years of Nanny's life, she lived in an apartment above our house here in San Antonio uh, when I was attending UTSA. And I got to have a lot of long conversations with Nanny about some of the challenging times she went through. In fact, she was a survivor of the polio virus, which was the deadly virus of her day. And then she and her family also went through one of the most challenging financial times in our history, often called the Great Depression. The Great Depression uh, led to 25% of all American workers losing their jobs. Think about that. That's like one out of four. And the Great Depression lasts for nearly four years. And I asked Nanny, I said, Nanny, that, that's just unbelievable. How did people get through it? How did y'all get through it? And you know what she told me? It was so interesting. She said, you know, Brent, sometimes you'd have to have like two families live in a house together. And sometimes, even in her case, there were three families living in one house. And what you hoped is that at least one person had a job. Because if one person had a job, it was enough. Of course, if two people had jobs, it was even better. But basically what she was telling me is that they determined if they were going to get through what they were going through, they were going to have to get through it together. And so they had to rethink the way they viewed family, the way they viewed their homes, the way they viewed their jobs, the way they viewed their possessions and their money. And they determined if somebody had a job and someone didn't have a job, the one with a job was going to help the one without a job. And it's such a beautiful picture of coming together to get through what you're going through. That is how that generation rose up and got through their trial. And I think that today we're going through something similar. It, hopefully it doesn't last as long as the Great Depression, but none of us really know. You know, the, the, the state and the city are relaxing some of the restrictions, but let's just be honest. None of us really knows how much longer this crisis is going to continue. And I think in light of that, it is so important for us as followers of Jesus during days like this, not to shrink back, but to rise up. 
We may need to rethink the way we view our families, our possessions, our money, our jobs, our homes, so that we can rise up and serve those in need. My prayer is that one day when we look back on this season, this coronavirus season, we will be proud of the way we rose up and took care of people in need. But to do that, we have to become a people who not only know what we believe, not only know our faith, we have to be a people who show our faith. Now, if you're new to God, new to Christianity, you're still checking the church out, you're still not sure what you think about all of that, I want you to know you're welcome. We hope that we can help you uh, with any challenging questions that you have. You know, City Church is a safe community where you can ask real questions that you have about our faith, you can get real about the struggles that you have in life. And I, our job is to sort of help you get clear about just what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And we do believe that Jesus is God's son. We believe that he offers us eternal life forever and an abundant life here and now. And a key aspect of the way of life that Jesus taught his followers is to view ourselves as servants of humanity. That's a part of how we rise up. And so I welcome you as we continue our study of an ancient letter written by Jesus' half-brother James. Now, if you, if, if, we're, if you haven't been with us, let me give you the setting of what James is writing to. So James wrote during a time when violent persecution broke out against followers of Jesus in the ancient city of Jerusalem. It forced them to leave their homes and to scatter into the neighboring, neighboring areas of Judea and Galilee. And so in essence, you know, they left their homes, they left their jobs, they left their family uh, network, and they had to come and live with other people. And so for them, these were trying times, especially financially. But then there were others, other followers of Jesus who lived in those areas who were in relative safety and rel relative prosperity. And so this became a season of testing in the early days of the church movement. First, James wrote to those who were suffering under these trials. And in the first chapter that we looked at in the first two weeks, James encouraged them to rise up under the pressure of trials and to endure through the trial. And so he encouraged them to consider all things joy, knowing that the testing of their faith would produce perseverance and that per perseverance would have a perfect and good result in them, that they would become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So that was James's message to those who were facing the, the challenging financial uh, season of this trial. But now James is turning his attention to those who were comfortable, those who were financially secure, and he was challenging them to rise up by taking what they had and taking care of those who had needs. James was challenging those followers of Jesus, the haves, if you will, to take care of the have-nots. And he told them, that's the way you rise up. And to do that, you have to show your faith. And so today, we're going to look at one of the most misunderstood passages in all of the Christian scriptures. And I think it's so unfortunate because it's also one of the most important passages in the Christian scriptures, especially during trying times like these. You ready? This is James 2, 14. James writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? 
Can faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, and this is his point, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by deeds, is dead. Now, this is a very rich uh, part of his letter, and I want to make several observations so we're clear about what James is saying. First, it's very clear that James is speaking to genuine believers here. He calls them brothers and sisters. In fact, this is the fifth time in this early part of his letter where he calls them my dear brothers and sisters. So he is writing to genuine believers in Jesus who are part of the family of God. And James tells these genuine believers that some of them have dead faith. And so let's just be clear. The only way you can have dead faith is if you are a genuine believer. You have to have faith before you can have a dead faith. Unbelievers can't have dead faith because they don't have faith. Only believers can have dead faith. So whatever he means by dead faith, it's a quality that only a genuine believer can have. Okay, so what does he mean by dead faith? Now, the word translated dead here, it's a Greek word, and it's similar to our English word dead. In other words, it can mean different things in different contexts. So, for instance, we talk about uh, someone being, you know, you're dead wrong. What do we mean by that? We mean you're really wrong. Or we talk about someone being dead drunk. What do we mean by that? We mean they're really drunk. We talk about an idea of being dead on arrival. What do we mean by that? We mean it's not even going to be considered. And then we talk about like a car engine being dead. What do we mean by that? We mean that this thing that's supposed to have purpose and, and accomplish something is useless. It's dead. And that's what James means by dead here. This quality that you can have that is supposed to serve a purpose is not accomplishing that purpose. So it's dead. And we know that that's what James means by this because in just a few verses, he, he repeats this idea and he switches the word uh, uh, dead for useless. This is James 2.20b, the second part of the verse. He says, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is what? Useless. So now he says useless instead of it. So that we know that that's what he means. Okay, so let, let's pull all of this together. A dead faith is a youth, useless faith. And only a genuine believer can have a dead faith. Well, what is it useless for? What does that mean to be useless? Well, obviously, it's useless for the person in need. Because if, if you see a person in need of clothing or food or housing, and you just give them some kind of trite blessing, well, I hope God blesses you. I hope that all works out for you. According to James, that's a dead faith. It's a useless faith. And it's useless to the person in need. But you know what? It's also useless to you. And James points this out. If you go back to verse 14, that, that, and this is why I'm saying this. In the first part of James 14, James says this. What good is it if someone claims to have faith? So now he's talking about the believer. I have faith. If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can faith save him? And the implied answer is no. 
A dead faith can't save him. A useless faith can't save him. A do-nothing kind of faith can't save him. Save him from what? Save him from judgment. I want us to look at the two verses leading into this verse 14. So you get the context of what this person who has faith, but it's a dead faith, is being saved from. This is verses 12 through 13, where James writes, again, remember, he's writing to genuine believers. And he says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Now, the judgment he's talking about here is not eternal judgment. He's not talking about saving you from your sins or saving you from hell or saving you for eternity. The judgment he's talking about here is a judgment that is only for believers. When you believe in Jesus and become a follower of Jesus, one day genuine believers will be judged based on how we lived our lives and how we used whatever we had uh, to serve humanity. And one day in that day, in that judgment, if we have shown mercy to people, if we have shown mercy to people in need, we will be rewarded for that. But if we've ignored people, if we have neglected people, we will lose rewards for that. And in that case, just knowing the right truths, this is what James is saying, just knowing the right truths will not save him in that judgment. Okay, let's pull this together. Let's tie it together. Only a genuine believer can have a dead faith. And a dead faith is useless to the person in need and it's useless to the person who has it. Notice how James continues his argument. Uh, this is verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is only one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Okay, here James makes a very profound point. And he does so, I hope you get this, he does so by comparing these believers, these genuine believers in God. They believe in God, they believe the right truths about God. But if they don't care about what God cares about, which is taking care of the need, those in need, James compares those kind of believers to demons. Now, I wanna, can I just pause for a second? I want to address those of you who maybe are still you know, new to Christianity or you're still not sure you believe what we believe yet. And hearing this talk about demons can sound a little bit weird. you know. And, and let me just say, I get it. I do understand that. Uh, the notion of, of there being other spirit beings that coexist with, with us, it can be strange. And like I said, I do get that. But there is a point where you will need to wrestle as you're exploring our faith, you will need to wrestle with uh, the worldview presented in the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures. Because in both faith traditions, they present the presence of these spirit beings called angels and demons who coexist with us. And then, of course, you will also have to wrestle with what Jesus believed about demons. If you read the stories of, that tell of Jesus' life and his ministry, Jesus believed in demons. Jesus talked to demons. Jesus confronted demons. And Jesus cast demons out of people who were tormenting them. 
Okay, so back, back to the text. Here, James compares believers who do nothing to help people in need to demons. Now, I know you, you may think that your ex had a demon, right? Probably. But how would, you, how would you like it if your pastor compared your behavior to a demon? That's pretty strong stuff. And so I want to make sure we understand his point. His point is that demons intellectually know the truth that there's only one God. They know that truth. But they choose to act against what they know is true. And what James is saying, this is so profound, is when you know the truth about God, and you know the truth about his compassion for those in need, and you do nothing about it, you're behaving like the demons. And I know that's strong stuff, but he's trying to make a point. He's challenging these genuine believers in Jesus to rise up and show their faith. And I, I want you to know that our church, City Church, your church, takes this understanding of Jesus' movement uh, and, and we're, we take it very seriously. This call to rise up and show our faith. It's part of why this year we made a decision to rearrange our entire church budget to give away 10% of everything we receive to our social action partners, like uh, the Strong Foundation Homeless Shelter right here in San Antonio and the uh, Casa God Orphanage in Chihuahua, Mexico. Many of you also know that we support a ministry that we helped establish in 2007, serving a, the, one of the poorest countries in the world in West Africa called Liberia. We started this organization called Liberia Now to bring holistic help to those people. And we've provided uh, water wells for entire communities. We have provided microloans to help the working poor get out of the cycle of poverty and start their own businesses. We built and established a school for poor children so they can get educated and, and raise themselves out of uh, poverty. And we've worked with a clinic that this church is so, such a great church. They built a bigger clinic than their own church property and it serves the whole community. Well, anyway, when the coronavirus pandemic finally spread into Africa, I contacted our point leader there, Pastor Emmanuel Gianfi. And I asked him, because they, they've shut down the whole country. They're, the whole country is in lockdown. And I asked him, is there any way that we can come alongside you and serve you during these days? And so he, he took a while and he, he went out into the community and asked what the needs were. And then he sent me a detailed list of what they needed above what we normally give to Liberia now. And uh, he asked for food for those who are food insecure, hundreds of bags of, of like 100 pound rice. That's their, their staple food. So we're going to buy them food. He asked for PPE for their clinic workers to keep them safe. And then he asked for cleaning stations for families that did not have cleaning stations because as we all know, keeping your hands and your body clean is a key way of keeping the virus from spreading. Well, all total for, to, to support that whole community, it was about $12,000. And so I contacted one of the board members on Liberia Now, who is a, a pastor of a sister church here in San Antonio, City Tribe. Uh, his name's Pastor Doug. Hey, Pastor Doug, we love you guys. Anyway, uh, I called Doug and I said, Doug, here's the need. He prayed about what they could do. We prayed about what we could do. And we tag team and we sent him a check or we wired the money for the entire amount nearly $12,000 this week. 
And I just want to say to you, thank you. Because of your generosity, we're able to be generous to others when they're in times of need. Your giving allows us not only to help people here in San Antonio and in Chihuahua who are in need, but to even help our friends in Liberia during these days. That is how you rise up and show your faith in tangible ways. Now, at this point in the letter, James transitions to give two examples of famous characters out of the Jewish scriptures who are examples of people who not only uh, had a faith, but showed their faith. Now, one of the characters you sort of expect, his name is Abraham. He's one of the most famous and the greatest heroes of the, of the Jewish tradition. And, uh, and his story is just so compelling. Uh, and, and the way James talks about it is so uh, theologically complex. I did not feel like I could unpack it in this setting. So this week, I'm going to have like a theological dialogue with John Pyle, uh, who has his master's degree in theology as well. And we're going to unpack that that part of the passage this week and we'll upload it on our, on our app and on social media so you guys, especially my theolo theological junkies, you know, you'll, you'll get to watch that later. But then James gives a second example and this example is surprising. It's not who you expect him to pick. This is what he writes, James 2, 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what a prostitute righteous? That's what he just said. Was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, and here's his theme again, so faith without deeds is dead. It's useless. Now, I love that he uses Rahab here. She's like the ultimate anti-hero hero in the scriptures. She's the unexpected Jewish hero in the Jewish scriptures. And, and if you don't know why James uses her here, I want to let you know a little bit more about her story. So what had happened during, during those times when Rahab did what she did that James talked about, the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And through powerful miracles, God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and provided for them in, in what we call the wilderness. And now he was leading them toward this promised land that he was going to give them, the land we now know as Israel. Well, the people in the land had heard about the powerful miracles and the way God had rescued the Israelite people. And Rahab was a prostitute in one of the cities in that land. She also heard about the powerful miracles of their God. And she eventually believed in their God. She didn't know everything to know about him, but because of the miracles, she knew enough to trust him. She had faith in God. But then when the Israelites sent spies into her city to sort of scope out, how are we gonna get this city? She did something about what she believed. And that's what James is pointing here. She lodged the spies. She gave them a place to stay and to eat. And then she helped them escape and get back to their uh, army and back to their people. And really, eventually, she helped the Israelites capture her own city. That's how strong her faith was in this God that was a, a new faith to her. So this non-Jewish ex-prostitute became one of the Jewish heroes. 
And I, I just want to pause for a moment and say something about the sex industry because of Rahab's story. You know, there are some people in our culture who try to glamorize the sex industry like it's this wonderful way for attractive women primarily uh, to make a lot of money doing something that feels good. And I just want to say that that whole notion is bogus and it's wrong and it's not true. It's not true today and it certainly was not true in ancient times. Normally, when a woman or a child ended up in human trafficking of some kind, it was because of some kind of abuse or because of some kind of desperate poverty or some kind of addiction or some kind of horrible trial that forced them into a horrible cycle of suffering. I want you to hear me on this. No child, no little girl, ever wakes up one day and says, my goal in life is to be a prostitute and sell my body. That's ridiculous. Terrible, tragic circumstances lead people there. And what I think is so amazingly beautiful about Rahab's story is it doesn't end in the Jewish scriptures. The Israelites respond to her showing her faith, rising up and showing her faith. The Israelites respond to Rahab's faith by inviting her and her relatives to become a part of the Israelite nation. And along the way, one of the Israelite men named Salmon married Rahab and they started a family together. And over time, eventually, their descendants became a part of the lineage, get this, of Jesus God's son. So God, think about this. God chose a non-Jewish ex-prostitute to be a part of his son's family. Isn't that awesome? And I want you to know that is the kind of God that we serve. And so if you've ever been in a place or a position where you had to make decisions that you really didn't want to make, God understands you don't have to be ashamed in his presence. You don't have to be embarrassed in his presence. Know this. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to believe in his son and to become a part of his family through faith in his son. And I promise you, if you will believe and then you will begin to act on your faith and show your faith, your tragic story can turn into something beautiful and meaningful. And you know, I think that's a part of why James uses the example of these two dramatically different people. Because he's casting vision for what Jesus' movement is all about. You see, when Jesus started the movement, he called the church. He expected that there would be all kinds of people with all kinds of back baggage, all kinds of back backgrounds, all kinds of issues who would believe in him, who, who would have faith in him, and who would show their faith in him by acts and deeds of kindness and love serving humanity. And let me just say, because you know we're focused on showing our faith, let me just say showing your faith doesn't have to be something as risky or dramatic as what Rahab did. In fact, most of the time, I think showing your faith is just paying attention. And when you see someone in need, making the decision to do something about it. 
Now, one of the proudest moments in my relationship with my dad occurred a few years ago when he became aware of a person in need within our family. It was a distant cousin that we really didn't see a lot. And uh, dad came to find out that he was on the verge of becoming homeless. You see, this cousin was a Vietnam vet and he was exposed to Agent Orange during his service of our country. And later in life, he became ill and developed uh, health issues because of his exposure. And he got to the point where he was unable to do his job. And so by the time that dad found him, he was behind in his rent. He didn't have much food and he was on the verge of becoming homeless. And I'm so proud of my dad because he rose up. He let some of the other family members know about what was going on. And then he spearheaded the effort to make sure that this cousin of ours did not become homeless. And so dad paid back his rent and in over three years, helped him pay his rent, helped him buy food, helped him to go to doctor's appointments, and then helped him work with the Veterans Administration to get the benefits that were due him. And my dad did all of this while he was on a fixed income because he was retired. And after three years of making sure that this cousin did not become homeless, he finally got his veterans benefits. And now he is thriving in life too. And when I look back on that season and I think about what my dad did, you you know what I think? I think it was the most religious thing he ever did. I think it's the most Christian thing he's ever done. He saw someone in need and he rose up and he showed his faith. And that, my friends, that's not a dead faith. That's a living faith. And that's what Jesus movement is all about. And so if you've never believed in God, our father and his son, Jesus Christ, I ask you to believe in him today. Put your trust in him and he can forgive your sins. He can give you an eternal life forever and an abundant life here and now. And you can know without a doubt that you're a part of the family of God. And if you are a believer, do not settle for a dead faith. I'm calling you to rise up and to have a living faith and to show your faith. And if you will do that, I promise you, you will have a meaningful, purposeful life. And that's beautiful. Let's pray together. First, I want to pray with those of you who have never believed in God the Father and his son Jesus. I invite you to believe in him today. And what I'd like to do is lead you through a prayer and you can just pray this prayer with me and I'll just sort of lead you through it. Are you ready? God, I believe in you and I believe you love me and I believe Jesus is your son. And so I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to make me your child. Today I believe. And then, Lord, I pray for those of us who do believe. I pray that you would give us courage and faith to rise up and to help those who are in need. I pray, Lord, that you would give us courage and faith to do something about our faith 
And I pray that as we do that, Lord, you would bless us back, bless us in return, so we can continue being a blessing to others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.